Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Greetings and welcome to this edition of Way with Vanilla. I had the honor, the pleasure, the joy, the, the exciting opportunity to talk with Seattle City Councilwoman, socialist alternative member and, and leader, progressive leader, um, Shama Swant. Um, we, I mean, it was great. We chopped it up, so definitely tune in. Um, there are a few calls to action, but also a need for us to be fighters for the causes that we're saying matter most to us as we look forward and the work that needs to be done um, going into 2017 and beyond. Um, it's not just you know presidential election cycles that require our attention, it's state, local community matters that have to be front and center all the time. And that only happens as she puts so eloquently when we the 99% come together and make the changes that we demand to have things done on our terms. So check it out and let me know what you guys think. All right, peace. Okay. Um, so I was I was really like I like I, like I just mentioned in our, our pre-conversation, um, I listened to an interview you did with a friend of mine, Michael Salomon, previously, and there was some really just great uh uh commentary, you know, in, in you guys' conversation about um needing to step outside the bounds of the traditional two-party system. Um, obviously, with you being a third party candidate, I'm just really motivated and inspired um, about the possibilities for people to to be able to stand outside of, you know, the regular two party system and just seeing, you know, all the work that you've been doing thus far in, in the city council. Um, how have you found it being able to work um, on issues being that you're not a part of one of the two, quote unquote, mainstream uh, parties? I think this question of. Uh, whether or not we should be as working people, as activists, as young people looking to change society, should be engaging with the question of moving outside of the two corporate parties is has been important in the last several decades. But it, it is so stunningly critical that we think about it now with the election of Donald Trump, because we have to have a correct explanation and analysis for what happened. And I don't uh, agree with uh, superficial and completely false analysis that this happened because America is turning right wing or because right. Trump was favored by a majority of voters and suddenly, you know, people are becoming racist and let's all hunker down. That's completely a false narrative. What's really happened is a historic failure on the part of the Democratic Party elite to be able to win against the least popular presidential candidate in the last 10 presidential cycles. I mean, that is a historic failure. The question is, what did it take to win against Trump, who was so widely hated and despised, correctly, for his racism, his misogyny, his anti-immigrant hysteria, all the uh, you know, all the evidence coming out about him personally being a right. sexual predator. I mean, what does it take to win against this kind of person? And that 
question leads us to the answer of how, although the Democratic Party is different than the Republican Party, mm-hmm. certainly I wouldn't argue that there is a there's an equivalence between them. But at the same time, what is true is that the Democratic Party elite are so thoroughly beholden to the same Wall Street interests that also govern the Republican Party, that at the end of the day, the Clinton campaign, even though they wanted to defeat Trump, they wanted to defeat the working class agenda brought forward by the Sanders campaign Mm -hmm. more so. And that is why they did everything in their power to push aside Sanders in the primaries. And once it was Clinton that was the nominee, uh, she abandoned any pretenses to any progressive agenda, and her only drumbeat was, I'm not Trump. Well, the voters have spoken, and they have said, by either not voting for Clinton and voting for Trump, or, or more importantly, by not voting at all, the voters have spoken and said that that is not good enough. We are no longer going to accept a choice between a more or less neoliberal pro-Wall Street, pro-billionaire party. What we want is something entirely different. And for people who are, uh, you know, correctly, I understand, correctly feeling sad by what what's happened, I would remind people uh, about the enormous uh, surge around Sanders' message of a political revolution against the billionaire class. That shows where American consciousness is. But what's missing is a serious political vehicle for working people and young people to organize around. And that's our historic task, you know, getting out, uh, understanding that we need to break from the Democratic Party and build our own political vehicle, which has to be a new united party, independent party for the 99%. Absolutely. And and just thinking about I, I'm, I'm so happy you said that about tying it back into the excitement and, and the act, you know, the co- collective activism and grassroots support that came up around, you know, the Bernie Sanders campaign, Um, this notion of a political revolution. Of course, it's come from under a lot of criticism and critique from different folks who who have their own agendas um, on different areas. But but in looking at like how we now move that forward in a quote unquote, you know, Trump America now, like what are some of the what are some things that from your own experience? What do you think that people should be prioritizing or working on as we continue to further and develop develop that movement and and build up local organizing efforts? I think that is the most important question. So thank you for highlighting that. First of all, we have to be very clear that even though Trump is the president-elect, that doesn't mean that we have to accept his agenda Mm -hmm. of racism and misogyny and bigotry. As a matter of fact, it is our moral and political duty to do everything to fight against it and not give it any space in the first place. And so our most urgent task, I would say, concretely, is to build for massive, peaceful demonstrations throughout the nation on January 20th, including high school and college walkouts. I'm, I'm appealing to high school and college students to carry out peaceful mass walkouts and join mass rallies in the evening of January 20th in every possible city around America. And on January 21st, all who can should converge on Washington, D.C., so that we can have possibly the most, uh, the most uh, strenuous protest in all of American history on presidential inauguration mm-hmm. day. And as you know, there's a women's march that's already been planned for right. Washington, D.C. 
I would urge that we all come together. And I think politically speaking, what's most important as we organize for this first step of our resistance is that we bring people who are galvanizing around various issues, we bring them together. So uh, we will not be able to fight to keep and expand women's rights. Mm -hmm. We will not be able to keep and expand immigrants' rights, black rights, uh, the rights of the LGBTQ community, and the fight fight against climate change. We will not be able to do any of these things Mm -hmm. unless we all come together. So primarily, politically speaking, what we need to build as we build towards these inauguration protests is a clear understanding of solidarity among the 99%. Know, okay. You know, that we are going to fight together. We cannot fight separately on different issues and expect that we are going to win on any of those. We either win on all of those by building solidarity or we're going to lose one by one. But if you look at Trump's agenda, it is not just, uh, it, it is not just empty rhetoric. He, he has amassed a cabinet that is the richest in U.S. presidential history. Yes. It is full of billionaires who are not only hostile to women's rights, but they're also deeply hostile to workers' rights in general. So what Trump is going to go after in a very systematic way, it's the rights of, rights of labor unions by starting with federal employees. So unless we hold the line on that, we're going to see it becoming a dangerous slippery slope for all of us. So we have to we either stand together and win for all of us, or we're going to see a dangerous period coming up. But nothing is inevitable. We can fight back against right. this. But that's the most important thing. I would like to add, for many of us, you know, we we are we were born after the Roe v. Wade era. But I think some uh, the 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 1960s and 70s hold some really key lessons for mm-hmm. us. If, if, if you recall, I mean, when Richard Nixon was elected president, we had the largest po- uh, protest on Inauguration Day at, at Washington, D.C. I believe there were about 60,000 people there at, because, you know, people were angry at right. a racist, misogynist and warmongering president being elected. But what's, what happened in the Nixon era is what holds the lessons for us. On paper, Richard Nixon is the most progressive president in the history of the United States. He, it was in his reign that the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade was passed. Right. The Vietnam War was ended. The Occupational Safety and Health Act was passed. The Environmental Protection yeah, Agency was exactly. formed. And major Black and Native American rights were won. That was not because he was in agreement with any of these things. Far from it. It was precisely because the mass movement at that time did two things correctly. One, they converged with one another and they coalesced on issues. And second, and most importantly, that the reason Nixon won was because activists refused to, the Democratic Party did not go left, and mm-hmm. activists refused to accept a false choice between a corporate Democrat and a right-wing Republican. And they continued to organize independently of both parties. And it was that pressure from an independent and powerful movement that forced the White House and U.S. Congress to give those concessions. I think that is the approach we need, not that we should be 
complacent about some mm-hmm. right wing rhetoric. I'm far from it. As as a matter of fact, I want to I want to let you know I completely disagree with Clinton when she said let's give Trump a chance, and with Obama yes, who yes. said well <laughs> Trump's success is our success. Absolutely wrong. Mm-hmm. That's a dangerous game to play. You know we have to fight against it. But the only way we can win is if we don't tie ourselves to the Democratic Party, which has already shown itself to be incapable and off and unwilling to address our needs so we have to organize independently i just i just want to just give a moment because everything you just said was so beautiful and 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 fabulous and definitely on point i think that 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 just to take it back for a second just what you were saying about learning the lessons from the history is so crucial because things happen in cycles you know things happen in waves and not that it's the same exact thing over and over again but at least that you know history does repeat itself and there are lessons to be learned right so there are some good examples of how we can move forward but maybe there were some pitfalls along the way that we can learn from to improve upon so that we're you know down the line with our children and grandchildren generations they're not then you know having to recreate the wheel or or do it all over again they 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 may have a new set of problems but at least you know we've left them a little bit stronger uh uh, maybe you know than than our current situation so I, i think that's just such a great point to highlight because a lot of people you know, think we have to recreate the wheel. We have to do this brand new thing when we do actually have, you know, some examples. And and, and I love that you highlight that on paper, um, Nixon does appear. Actually, a friend was just saying the same thing. Like, well, you know, Nixon created the EPA and look at who he really was in real life. So I, I that that is the power of the people. And I think that that was one of the things that I learned and appreciate so much from my experience, you know, as a grassroots volunteer for Bernie Sanders was that the people power, right? I think people really learn that when people come together and stand up and say this is not okay and this is where we need to be going other people feel comfortable like yeah I agree let's do this we have power together we may not have the money but we have the power we have the votes we have the bodies so so that was just such a strong um, um statement uh, uh you you made there and 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 looking forward and I really do think that we need to make sure that we're listening to those voices as we're going forward and voices such as yours exa- what you were saying about coming together and, and and building around these issues that have to be addressed because you know coming out of the primaries coming out on the democratic side things have been so fractured and there's still so much personal and for some people like hurt feelings over different things that happen but but it's crucial, like you were saying, that that we're, we're people who are willing to do the work to come together and work that 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 we that we build out um, going forward. And I like that you 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 mentioned because I, I I will admit that I had a little reservations initially when I heard of the march, the women's march, um, but reading you know about some of the new leadership changes and how it's really being geared towards activism and organizing. It's like wow, okay, this really could be something that we all can get get behind. So so the call to action. I think it's great that you paired a historical lesson with a cold call to action at the same time. Um, so just thinking about, you know, kind of shifting a little bit more now to like local, um, some local work, because all politics, you know, at the end of the day is local. And we really have almost avoided, it seems like, a pipeline issue in terms of we talk about these national level issues and leadership, but there's so much great work that seems to be going on in many of our communities across the country. And Seattle seems to be a hotbed for um I'm sure it's not a perfect place, but it seems to be some place where progressive action legislation gets proposed and passed. Um, you, you all, city council was able to pass secure scheduling not too long ago um, at the forefront in terms of the Fight for 15 movement. And, and there, there's been a lot of talk 
in terms of affordable housing, right? Um, I saw last year that there was a push to lift the ban on um, the state ban on, on rent control. Can you just talk a little bit about that? And then we can talk a little bit more about um, the recent conversation around uh, getting some funds earmarked for affordable housing in, um, in Seattle. Right. I think it's important that we talk about what progress has been made at every level, you know, local and Mm -hmm. larger. Uh, And as you said, we, we, uh, first of all, Seattle was the city that the first major city to pass the historic $15 an hour minimum wage. And the first year of those workers actually are going to go to 15 on January 1st of 2017. Really? um, Yeah, it's really... uh, I'm personally and as an activist just so delighted that we were able to do that and that that's happening this year. And it's some, certainly our movement, a moment, you know, our, our movement's moment to celebrate mm-hmm. when the first workers go to 15. Not to say that that is in any way a living wage. It is not. I mean, both right. as a regular person who lives in Seattle and knows the cost of living and as a, as a professional economist, I, I can tell you very confidently that is not a living wage. I wouldn't say really anywhere. But what matters is that this was a movement that was built around a concrete political demand. You know, $15 an hour is a concrete demand. Workers organized around it. We built the 15 Now grassroots campaign where socialist uh, labor union members and ordinary workers, many of whom don't have a union, came together and fought for this. Workers of all races and genders fought for this and won this, despite the tremendous opposition from big business. That's what matters. So the fact that this was this was a win that was wrenched from the hands of a billionaire class that was loath to give even this small change. Right. That's what's important. And uh, even from a monetary standpoint, this is huge because when all workers go to 15 in Seattle, it would have represented a transfer of wealth of $3 billion from the bosses to the workers. This matters to us. Every bit that we can win matters to us. But I, but I should say that this victory or any other victories on affordable housing that I would love to talk about in a second w- were not won because the city council and the politicians in Seattle are somewhat extraordinarily more progressive than politicians elsewhere. That is not true. Mm-hmm. The people of Seattle are extremely progressive. There is no question about that. Right. But I would say that even though there are, of course, differences from a city like Seattle, say, uh, or, and, and a city in some other state, of course, there are differences in culture and, and how progressive-leaning people are. There's no question about that. But one thing, one thread that runs in common to all cities in the U.S., and indeed in our national politics, is that the regular people, you know, working people, young people, elderly, retirees, we are, as ordinary people, far more progressive than the political choices that are often on offer. Mm. And the choices that are on offer are Republican and Democrat. So I want to, you know, while I talk about Seattle, I want to dispel a common myth that is handed down to us okay. that when you're organizing on the left, well, let's don't, you know, we're, we're told, don't run, we're told by the Democrats, don't run a left candidate uh, nationally because then you'll allow the Republican to win. Just do it locally. We're told that over and over again. Right. You know, I supported Bernie Sanders in the primaries. 
I urged him to run independent. He did not. I, I disagreed with his idea. And I endorsed Joe Stein for the general election because I think it is really important that we move forward the idea of independent left politics at every level. And, uh, you know, Democrats were saying, well, that's just wrong. We should, we should focus on local. Well, let me tell you what happens in local elections. If we believe this myth that somehow the Democratic Party elite will leave us alone to build left radical militant politics of activists and young people right. in local areas, we're sorely mistaken. That is absolutely not what happened. $15 an hour was won not only against the opposition of big business, but against the covert and overt opposition of Democratic Party politicians in this city mm-hmm. who support the big business agenda. It was not because of them. It was it was won in spite of them. Right. And uh, and it, it and what was critical for winning 15 and every other reform that we've won since I took office in 2014, it's not because of me personally, but it is absolutely because working people have a real voice in City Hall through my office because my office is the only office that is completely unbought by corporate interests mm-hmm. and is unambiguously standing with activists and working people. That is what makes a difference. So even if you have one voice in government that is com- that is tied to mass movements and that is completely accountable to mass movements, because I'm held accountable to right. working people through my organization, Socialist Alternative. Socialist Alternative holds me accountable and it also gives me the strength to fight against Democratic Party politicians in this city. So I think the first thing that we need to get clear is that there is no alternative to organizing independent of the Democratic Party. And it will be hard, but it has to be done because whether it's local or national, the parties of Wall Street are the obstacle for social change. That's the bottom line. So we have to organize independently. And and when we do organize independently, we can win in, win in, win victories that we were told we could never do. I mean, when we when we raised Absolutely. when we first raised the banner of fifteen when we launched our campaign for city council in early two thousand thirteen, we were told that could never be done. You know, one of the Democratic mayoral candidates that year had the um, had the temerity to say that low-wage workers were being presumptuous by asking for 15. This at a time when the average CEO salary is more than 350 times the salary of the average right, worker. Right. These are the Democratic Party politicians that you know that we are holding our hopes for. And so it was said that it would be impossible to elect a socialist. We did it. Uh, it was said that it would be impossible to win 15. We did it within six months of my being elected. And then... Uh, beyond that, we have won incredible gains for affordable housing. As you said, we 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 have not uh, won against we, we haven't we have not succeeded yet in repealing the statewide ban on rent control, but we have made huge headway in in clarifying issues to people. And last year, we forced the city council that was extremely reluctant to do this to pass a resolution in favor of repealing the ban. That's mm-hmm. like the city council, the entire city taking an official position against the ban. And this right. year, <laughs> this year, as you might have heard, uh, you know, the, the Seattle Police Department uh, some, some years ago uh, came under the consent decree of the Department of Justice yes. for racially biased policing and excessive use of force. This is a police department that has been indicted over and over for its uh, problematic culture on race and, you know, its orientation towards homeless people and poor people. Right. And uh, and yet, 
And yet, the Democratic Party majority of this city thought that their topmost budget priority this year was going to be to give $116 million of public dollars to build a new precinct building that was completely unnecessary. The movement in Seattle, the Black Lives Matter movement, and ordinary people in Seattle rose in anger, and we had a block-the-bunker uh, movement that socialist mm-hmm. alternatives supported, okay. and that forced that, that, that you know, storm City Hall over and over again. We shut down the meetings, and we forced the Democratic elite to back down. That is, they, they backed down only temporarily, but that's a serious victory. It shows what, can, what we can win if we refuse to accept these false choices that right, are presented right. to us. And then what my office did was that we, we, we did some research into that money and we found out that it could be used for affordable housing instead. So we took the energy from the Block the Bunker movement and we, we, uh, we started the coalition to build a thousand homes because we calculated with that same $660 million, we could build a thousand affordable homes. And so that was a powerful coalition of the faith community, the uh, black community, the uh, labor movement. We, we brought everyone together in a really big coalition to build a thousand homes. And yet, Yet, it was not powerful enough to win the entire thing. I mean, my point is not to be discouraging the movements, but my point right. is to say, look how powerful we need to build against the Democratic Party, you know, because Seattle does not have any Republicans. It is all Democrat and me, oh, one really? socialist council member. And yet, this Democratic Party establishment okay. stood against using those dollars for affordable housing because they are not only beholden to corporate interests, they are also beholden to the police department. Uh, you know, many of those politicians right. have taken money from the police officers' guild. They have been endorsed by the police officers' mm-hmm. guild. The police officers' guild asked me when I was running last year if I wanted to come for an endorsement interview, and I said, no, thank you. You know, so you need political representatives who are very clear what side they stand on and that they're Absolutely. willing to take on the task of not being cozy with the establishment because this job is not easy. But the way you do it is not only through personal courage, which of course is important, but what's more important is that I have an entire organization that stands with me. If I did not have socialist alternative with me, this task would be impossible. So if we want a politics, if we want an example of politics that is unbought by corporations that stands against police violence and is willing to use the the amplified position to build mass movements, then we can accomplish something. And that is why we not only need mass movements, but we need those mass movements to build our own independent party of the 99 percent. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love the way you tie that into the need for the movement of the independent party for the 99 percent. That that was a great even even though that maybe the the full the full amount was not the full goal, the full aim of 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 was not achieved. It still is a powerful testimonial, so a powerful example of what people can yes. achieve. Oh, I, and, and actually, then, so, sorry, I, no, no, sorry, go ahead. sorry go ahead. to interrupt you, but I, no, but no, I forgot. Go ahead. I forgot. I, I I forgot to mention that we did win uh, an additional victory. Actually, we forced the city council to put 
29 of those 160 million into affordable housing. So it was a far yes. bigger victory than I made it sound. Yes. Uh, I was going to ask it, you, it, it, <laughs> I was going to ask you to follow up about that specifically because um, Andre in preparing, you know, I read some articles and cause I was like, wow, like I said, I live here in, here in Atlanta. Um, and, and when you pointed out that, you know, it's all Democrats and then you in Seattle, you know, Atlanta is another place that has been a democratic stronghold and you have these fiscally conservative or, or whatever they call themselves type of corporatist Democrats who do make decisions that benefit, you know, the, the, the wealthy elite. We have we have issues here with people being evicted for their homes for for expansion of, you know, sporting arenas and things like that happening. And it's a it's it's my black Democratic mayor and a predominantly, you know, majority black city that is engaging in this displacement of people for the benefit of corporate interests and investing money versus investing in schools and communities and services. So I I, I think it, it's 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 one thing I always encourage people to stop getting away from this false dichotomy that, you know, Republicans are evil and Democrats are good. You know, in our beginning of our conversation, you did note that it's they're not the same, but we can't just automatically always treat as if Democrats are our only option, that they're always going to be a natural ally. I lived in um, West Virginia for several years as well. And, you know, the current Senator Manchin, former governor, he's a conservative Democrat, whatever that means. And, 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 and he's one of the greatest threats to, you know, environmental protection and, and other very necessary clean water, very necessary, very real, real needs of the people in West Virginia. Even if you're looking at trying to, you know, move transition people from a coal based economy to cleaner energy, you know, a, a diversification of the economy, just so many things. And, and these are the quote unquote Democrats. Um, so I, I, I just I just love how you highlighted that. We can't be so wedded to, you know, that duopoly that we're not able to see one, the potential for something new to, to arise from the people themselves, but also our power. And I think that's something that's so underestimated. And, and, and we do, we live our regular lives. We work every day. You know, we have the different forces that kind of press upon us. But when we come together, when we have people with personal courage, Nina, Nina Turner, Senator Nina Turner always says a heart and soul agreement. And I hear that passion in your voice when you talk. Um, and, it's, and, and just what you were saying about having an organization having people who believe and stand behind you and support you. That's something I've always thought would work with how we keep candidates from falling into, you know, being beholden to different interests. If they actually have people behind them who are organized and supporting what they're doing, it would make the difference. So it was really great that you highlighted that um, with this affordable, with affordable housing, with the $29 million, just, just like a little bit, like how will that kind of work? Um, or do we do you see further challenges in, in getting that allocated, you know, um, proportionately? Or is it just a commitment overall for the city to develop affordable housing um, going forward? Well, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's a very concrete budget measure that was passed, meaning okay. the, the majority of, of the council has voted for it. So they are now legally bound to follow through on it. Okay. So it will happen. And. The way it works is the city's office of housing, which is a city department, will be charged with the task of uh, of building this. And just just to back up a little bit to to highlight why this was a really uh, a big success, even though we didn't win all of the money, police bunker money for this, mm -hmm. is that uh, the establishment, the democratic establishment, and the business establishment actually uh, really fought against this. Measure not only because this, you know, they want this money to be spent on the police department, 
but also because this money is not it's not like the this 160 million dollars exists in cash in the city's vault it's it's money that can legally be raised by the city by selling municipal bonds which okay. is you know which is a legal way of right. doing it i mean and you you can see cities doing this all the time uh, often for socially non beneficial reasons like sports arenas or i mean i know i know some people may support that but my point is it's not like it's a top priority like affordable housing but our point is if it can be done for a police bunker then why can't it be done for affordable housing why can't we use municipal bonds and raise debt to build affordable housing and so the seattle times which is the local newspaper uh, you know most wi- uh, widely circulated newspaper actually published two or more prominent editorials against this idea you know they said it was fiscally irresponsible to for the city to go into debt to build affordable housing which of course we completely disagree with mm-hmm. because if you if you think that the city it's okay for the city to go into debt to build a police bunker then what is your argument against using the same financing mechanism to build affordable housing as a matter of fact it's financially prudent to end homelessness not to right. mention the moral implications of addressing homelessness and so when the office of housing works on this project what they will do is develop what are called affordability covenants meaning they will have to they will decide uh, you know and and we we are going to fight for as much public input as possible on on what kind of housing units will be built you know you could you could build uh, you know different combinations of you know you could build many two bedroom units you could build many one bedroom units you could build larger units for extended families especially to accommodate homeless immigrant families mm-hmm. there could be many things that could be done but the bottom line is that they would be affordable meaning that all units would be available for no more than 30% of the household's right. uh, income right. which is the rule of thumb that economists use for right. rent affordability Mm-hmm. and secondly it would be uh, it would be targeted towards uh, people uh, at very low incomes so it will actually make a dent in the housing unaffordability situation in the city but obviously it's not going to be enough so we have to use the energy that we have from this victory to continue building the movement for rent control to uh, tax big developers to make extra funds for affordable housing and Uh, you know also other things like a millionaire tax to mm-hmm. raise funds for mass transit and for public education because all of these issues are connected i do think uh, as you're highlighting correctly that affordable housing is a prime necessity in many metropolitan areas you mentioned atlanta uh, obviously atlanta is one of the cities that is facing this and you know just a few days ago oakland saw this disastrous fire right. breakout yes. that Uh, ended so many lives tragically yes. and it's unconscionable and inaccurate that the media has portrayed the artists as if they are to blame but in reality what's to blame is the housing crisis right that's uh, happening in every city so we need we need to be we need to be able to address this and i think seattle is a model not because it's unique uh, in its people but what's unique is the movement that we are able to, we have been able to build by having socialists lead the way by making it clear that we cannot rely on the democratic party and you mentioned Bernie Sanders and Nina Turner I and mean, I wanted to if you if you if you if it's okay just yeah, spend a few moments on that uh, you know I think 
they are great examples of how there are so many well-meaning people organizing within the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. But the last election cycle also shows why the why using the Democratic Party is a defunct strategy. Mm-hmm. What was problematic with the Sanders campaign was not his campaign program. You know, we in Socialist Alternative agreed completely with everything he was calling for. Free education, addressing student debt, taxing Wall Street speculation, single-payer health care, the $15 minimum wage nationwide. We agree with all of those points that he raised. Uh, and also, of course, the question of racial justice which and gender justice, which cannot be minimized. We know we need equal pay for equal work. And also it's a you know, it's a serious indictment on capitalism that there is no country in the world yet under global capitalism capitalism where women make the same money as men. I mean, that that right. shows you what the system is, uh, where the system is. But I think that the point to be highlighted here is that I uh, that Nina that people like Nina Turner and Bernie Sanders need to move towards independent politics, and if mm. they want. It's our job to do so. You know, it's our right. job in the grassroots to do so. So our job is not to follow leaders uh, because we admire them. Our job is to follow ideas that make sense. So uh, just to give you an example, Socialist Alternative and I called on Bernie Sanders to run as an independent because we had predicted from the very beginning that if he ran in a Democratic Party on his call for a political revolution against the billionaire class, we pointed out that that's not going to work if you run from a party that represents the billionaire class. Right. That's just a basic contradiction. And when he lost the Democratic primary, we urged him to run independent. But instead of running independent, he actually ended up endorsing Hillary Clinton. We disagreed with him publicly right. on that. And we think it's our duty, it's a movement's duty to disagree with those mistakes. Because at that time, everybody was saying, well, if he ran independent, then he'll take votes away from Clinton and Trump might win. But look what happened. Because there was no left-wing challenge at all that was putting pressure on Clinton, she felt free to completely abandon any progressive agenda. She did not even say, I support $15 an hour. She completely abandoned it. And her only line was, I'm not Trump, vote for me. And look how that worked for us. Now we have Trump as a president. Imagine a counter scenario where maybe Trump would have won, but maybe Hillary would have won, but we would have had Sanders running as an independent and pointing the way forward towards independent politics. Look how much stronger we would have been today, regardless of whether Trump or Clinton would have won, while recognizing that, of course, there's a difference between Trump and Clinton. But the point is, do we have a preparedness of the mass movements to build independently or not? That's the question, and that's the that's what we have to build on today. Even uh, you know, as as and, and in fact, the best strategy of fighting against Trump is to build independently of the Democratic Party, understanding that we cannot rely on them to fight against the right wing agenda. Right. Absolutely. And and I just wanted to give you, if if you don't mind, sorry, I'm going on. No, 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 no. This is really great. Go ahead. That. This is great. Go ahead. Thank thank you. Uh, you know, uh, as more and more voter statistics appear, I think it's important to study what happened in the election campaign. And I just wanted to uh, bring out one of those statistics mm-hmm. that was uh, a, a very good analysis was presented on Slate.com a few days ago. But they pointed out that if you count up the number of votes that Trump may have taken away from counties that went for Obama in the last two elections. Mm -hmm. And if you count up the number of 
uh, votes that did not come in at all, meaning voters stayed home compared to 2008 and 2012, right. progressive voters stayed home. The number of voters that were lost to Clinton because voters stayed home far outnumbers right. the number of voters, votes that went for Trump. So this narrative that suddenly, uh, you know, all the progressive voters went for Trump is completely false. Right. What is true is that Clinton failed to energize the voter base that was willing to vote for Obama in the last two elections. That is, that is, a, that is, uh, you know, the Democratic Party's historic failure. And uh, uh, I wanted to also challenge this idea of, uh, you know, you brought this up, and thank you for that because it, it sort of triggered a memory that there is this idea, especially in the South, that well, you know, we 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 should vote Democrats even if they're fiscally conservative because they're socially liberal. I would like to point out, both as a socialist as an economist, that the idea of being fiscally conservative and socially liberal is a contradiction in terms and it's a falsehood <laughs> yes, because yes. how can you fight? I mean, when you say socially liberal, I would assume you mean you're progressive on LGBTQ issues right. or the question of racism. But how can you, how is it possible to be with black people, for example, and to have supported the gutting of welfare by yes, the Clinton in the 90s. Absolutely. Because who did that impact? That was not a, just a worker issue or just a, a you know, class mm -hmm. issue. Yes, it was a class issue, but it was also very much a race issue because who do you think was most impacted by the gutting of welfare? It was black women. Yes. It was single mom households that were, that were suddenly plunged into poverty because of the floor being pulled from beneath them. When you talk about NAFTA, is that a worker issue? Yes. But is that also a people of color issue? Absolutely. Yes. Because who do you think was the most impacted by the massive deindustrialization de and economic stagnation in the Rust Belt? It was black workers. And so if you look at the black voters who did not vote in just three cities, Milwaukee, yep. um, Detroit, and Philadelphia, mm -hmm. if just those voters had gone out and voted, Clinton would have won hands down. But why did they not vote? Because they are fed up of this false choice. And so if we, are re if we really have a finger on the pulse of American consciousness, then we absolutely have to raise the question of an alternative to the Democrats and Republicans. Wow. <laughs> absolutely. That is, that, is, that is so crucial what you just said about, and that was one of the struggles and criticisms that many, I would argue, you know, black democratic elites made of Bernie Sanders in the primary was that he was only talking about class and that's not our issue. And what you just illustrated and highlighted is so important that when you talk about these major economic issues and people are like, oh, I'm fiscally conservative, they really actually do have, you know, issues in terms of race, ethnic, ethnic ethnicity, et cetera, as well, gender, they have these social implications as well. So when you're talking about exactly the same thing with, with, with black workers in Baltimore, with the closure of, of certain, um, you know, factories and industries, we can talk about uh, Cleveland, Buffalo, there's so many cities around in, in, in those, those former industrial, you know, uh, uh, strongholds that disproportionately when things change, when things happen, they do affect, you know, people of color, workers of color, uh, uh, infinitesimally in some areas more than, 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 than maybe their white counterparts. So I think that that's such a strong point to make because there really needs to be um, a, a multiracial movement that, that centers, you know, racial justice and, and women's rights and at the middle, but we cannot pretend like the economic, the class issue 
has to be addressed as well. It has to be both and it cannot be either or. So I really appreciate you for taking that step back and, and, and just highlighting that um, some more. This has been great. I really appreciate you so much. Is there anything else that you really want to, you know, add? Is there, I mean, just any words of advice for people who are thinking about running? We have, we've had the rise of quote unquote, Bernie Kratz, you know, progressives who are running their special elections coming up. Um, and in 2018 midterm elections, so there are people who are really serious about running for office. Would you have, do you have any like words of advice or thoughts on that going forward? Yeah, I think that's that's important. Maybe a few few words in closing. One is, uh, I, I think if you look at what's happening in the left wing of the Democratic Party, obviously the Democratic Party elite understand that their party is in crisis after mm. this major defeat that they've experienced with the White House and both the House and Senate going to Republicans. And they're going to try to uh, scramble and try and win the approval of their base again. And no doubt the Democratic elite will try to, uh, will like to take advantage of Sanders and Warren and our revolution as much as they can. And I think the people leading our revolution and also in the grassroots of our revolution are really genuine. I believe that Sanders is uh, genuine, but I do disagree with him fundamentally about the prospects of using the Democratic Party as a base and pushing it to the left. I mean, I agree with Sanders and Robert Reich, who said that the Democratic Party has failed the progressive agenda and failed working mm -hmm. people. I absolutely agree. But and, and they also agree that we need a new party. But what they are saying is that the Democratic Party can be pushed to the left and we made that new party. I, I just don't see that happening. I think that is uh, an exercise in futility. Because we've seen that decade after decade that that can't be done because the Democratic Party is completely bought out by corporate interests. There are no democratic structures within the party. I mean, when was the last time you and I were invited to a rank and file meeting of the Democratic Party right. where you and I got to vote on a policy agenda, where we got to vote on who should be the candidate, where we got to recall a candidate that broke their promises? There is no such structure, organizational structure within the party. How are working people supposed to push through a progressive agenda against the attack on workers, against racism and sexism, uh, un unless we have a real say in the party's politics? And the Democrat, I don't see the Democratic Party offering that channel. And so I think that for those of, uh, those of us who are correctly, and I, and I am too, inspired by the work of Bernie Sanders and our revolution, I would urge that we think seriously about building our own independent politics outside of the Democratic and Republican parties. And for candidates who are thinking of running, I think it's absolutely critical that we have a base. I mean, look at Nina Turner. She's inspiring. Right. But, it, it, but she, at the end of the day, even though she has a base that uh, stands with her, She, as long as she's part of the Democratic Party, she answers to the party elite. Instead, what it should be is that she, she is an elected representative of an independent party that she answers to, not the Democratic Party, where we as regular people can control the agenda, control who runs for office, and control what they run on, you know, democratically controlling it, uh, you know, in a collective way, deciding that we're going to fight for 15. And we need candidates and a party that will be that will not take any money from corporations, as I did, as, as Sanders also did, uh, and uh, also, you know, never never being sort of distant from mass movements, being tied right. to mass movements as well. And I would say that on the question of class and race, I think that 
and I, and I speak as uh, a, an Indian immigrant woman of color, mm-hmm. I think that what's paramount in the leadership of these movements is not the skin color of those leaders, but what agenda they stand on. Mm-hmm. So uh, in, in our city council, for example, we have Latina women who pushed for that police bunker. Right. And myself and a white council member, Mike O'Brien, stood against it and stood with the movement. So my point is that there's, there's two things that we need to keep in mind. One is that we, we need leaders who are accountable to the movement regardless of their skin color, and nobody gets a free pass. So if Absolutely. it's a black politician or a brown politician who Absolutely. betrays the movement, then they need to be called out on it. But it's also important that uh, black and brown people, women, and all people from oppressed groups be at the forefront of the movement. We yes. have to play a leadership role. Women like us have to play a lead. Women of color like us have to play a leadership role. But we have to understand who are our friends and who are our foes. People are not our friends or foes automatically because of their skin color or their gender or right. their sexual yes, orientation. Absolutely. What mm-hmm. makes them our allies or our enemies is where they stand. And I would also say, lastly but not least, is that I don't agree with the uh, the ideas of uh, privilege theory, where in 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 a black movement, everybody who's not black can only be an ally. I I would say I, I'm not a black person. I'm a brown person, but I am. I proudly declare that I am not an ally, but I am a fighter in the movement for black rights. And the only way we can make any headway on black rights for true black liberation is if we bring working people and young people of all races together, standing shoulder to shoulder for black liberation. That is the only way we will win women's liberation. That is the only way we will end any every oppression in society. Well, I am so proud to have you as a fighter by my side any day. That is beautiful. I appreciate it. I actually don't like the term allies. I think that, um, you know, my, my my son, he's really, he likes the old war movies. And he always jokes that ally, that the U.S. was allies with everybody until it, <laughs> right. until they, they stayed out of it. Like, like they were like, my, my 12-year-old, he's right. like, well, the U.S. was an ally. They didn't even get their hands dirty until something happened to them personally. And I said, that's a really interesting way of thinking about that, it, you that's know. That's a very, very good point. That's <laughs> a very good point, actually. that I totally agree with that. In fact, Creating uh, the distinction between fighters and allies in our movement actually weakens our movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think I think if people are willing to do the work and people are willing to put it on the line for those issues that matter. And I mean, like you like you say, if we center, you know, liberation, black liberation, brown liberation, we center these liberation movements in our work, workers' liberation. We center this. We center that in our work. It, it, it builds for a stronger movement overall for all of us. Um, and it helps us begin to start winning, you know, some of these different goals and benchmarks that we need to be achieving to getting to that, that, that higher place. Um, and, and I appreciate you so much again for taking so much, I'm, I'm, I'm taking almost an hour of your time today. Um, but thank you. This has been like one of the best conversations I've had all year. Um, so, so thank you again for, for taking the time and, um, I'll definitely get you a link and stuff. This was, this was great. Um, yeah. Oh, my God. This is so, <laughs> so wonderful. Thank you so much. Likewise, I really, really enjoyed our conversation. And please, please uh, be in touch and, and, and let's, let's have more conversations.